So I was from, you know, as privileged as they come. Middle-class family, loads of stability, loads of safety. I did struggle a lot at school, you know, learning differences, dyspraxic and stuff. So I was awful at pretty much everything. That was really terrifying. That isolation became more and more. I didn't know then it was going to keep happening and it was going to keep getting worse. I was going to get less and less control of it. And then once I started, it was this monster, this craving that was just so powerful. You're welcome. Whatever's going on, whatever you're thinking, whatever you might make of all this stuff, you're welcome and you're loved. Come along. Come along and listen. There's no pressure. Hello and welcome to 12 Steps and 12 Questions. My name is Silvio and I'm an addict. This pod is full of personal and inspirational stories of recovery from addiction. And in every episode, I'll ask each guest the same 12 questions about their life, addiction and recovery. Quick warning, there will be some graphic descriptions and a healthy amount of swearing. For this episode, please welcome Tom. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much for coming around for this new episode of 12 Steps and 12 Questions. Let's jump right into it. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and straight into question one, did you have any adverse childhood experiences? All right. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, So I'm Tom. I'm an addict. I'm 38 years old, Um, the last two of which I've been sober from all substances. And... I've been in and around recovery, um, 12 steps for a few years longer than that. So that tells you something (laughs) about my journey. Um, Yeah. Did I have any adverse experiences? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, But nothing to write home about, nothing overwhelming, you know, nothing um, that that I remember that I would call trauma, you know, something overwhelming. In that sense, I was from, you know, as privileged as they come, kind of middle-class family. Um, yeah, loads of stability, loads of safety. Yeah, we family had some stuff, like all families. Um, I did struggle a lot at school, you know, learning differences, dyspraxic and stuff. So mm. I was awful at pretty much everything. Um, and I do wonder what effect that kind of have, has the... Uh, you know the school system as it was when I was in it sort of built to basically tell you you're not you're not very good compared to everybody else but I don't you know again I was from such a supported environment that I was still able to get through that and have every opportunity kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. dyspraxia being dyspraxic mm-hmm. what is that for those who the listeners who might not be familiar with it uh, it's uh, well, I think it's classed as a learning difficulty. I don't like that term difficulty because it, it wasn't it wasn't a difficulty of mine. It was as I saw it, it was a teaching difficulty. You know, they they had the, I could learn stuff that I was interested in very well and I, I that was presented to me in the right way, or I was just left to get on with. Um, but yeah, it makes certain things really difficult: motor control, coordination, um, mm. reading, and you know, main, um, retaining information in a sh- short-term way, and organization, and and things like that. So it, it knocks on a lot to to learning to, you know, anything academic makes it quite hard. Kind of can make you look like you're pretty stupid and lazy, and then I'd act up because I was bored and because I was, you know, getting labelled as stupid and lazy by uh, by a lot of teachers. And my Were you? Was I labelled like that? Oh, labelled, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah not stupid and lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, it's, I have to say, you know, knowing you as I do, you know, you're sort of 
you're an eloquent person um, mm-hmm. and smart person. So putting those two together, what you're telling me in the way you are today, mm-hmm. it's almost unimaginable, really. Mm. I think I did. I was really lucky. I was good at music. Um, it's what my parents um, did and do for a living. Um, so I had that. I was really good at something. So that gave me a lot of self-esteem. And I did, I did have that belief that I wasn't stupid. I kind of knew that I wasn't. I didn't think anyone was stupid. You know? um, so yeah, I was. That, that was really good. If I hadn't had those things, and if I certainly if I hadn't had the, like, the family that I did, um, you know, that could have been really, really different. That could have really sent me off the rails. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the dyspraxia was the main adverse childhood experience you've had? Yeah, as far as I can remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking back on it, like it was, it was pretty bad. I don't even know how aware of it I was at the time, but it was pretty humiliating. But you know, I had no, not really any physical coordination, so doing sports and things was just was was pretty bad. It was it was um, probably pretty damaging on some level. But again, I wouldn't say it was any you know overwhelmingly traumatic thing. Mm. Mm. Which brings us straight brings us straight to question two, which is, what did the moment you first got hooked? What did the fun times look like? Mm. So from the dyspraxic kid, <laughs> they overlapped. I think when I got hooked, it was right from the right from the beginning. Um, it really was. I think I was, yeah, I was eleven, um, and my someone in my family <laughs> uh, gave me some like lemon vodka. And just told me it was lemonade or whatever. Um, I must have realised pretty quick it wasn't just lemonade. But I had I had loads of it and got absolutely smashed at eleven. At eleven, <laughs> and um, oh my god, I loved it. It was from that moment. It was like, well, whenever I can get back to feeling like that, I'm going to do that. Mm. Um, why wouldn't I? Why does anyone want to feel any other way? Sort of thing. It was yeah. I remember, I remember being an, an immediate and um, extreme kind of reaction. It was bad. Like I, you know, I kind of, I think I blacked out and I, you know, threw up a lot and stuff, but it, it was also, well, for a first it was drunk, also really fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's quite something. At yeah. Time, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a kind of a baptism of fire, I guess. But then we'd, you know, we'd learn to like raid my parents' drink cabinet and stuff and do that a lot of weekends. And when they, you know, they go out, we'd do that. And it was just like the best, you know, I was fixated on it. You know, if that was an option, why the hell would you not be doing it basically? Mm-hmm. And then alcohol was your first port of call then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was alcohol. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, looking back, I was very obsessed with it. I had a very different relationship with it to my friends, you know, as, as teenagers. Um, I remember them saying to me, like, why, why, why are you so obsessed with alcohol? Like, it's all I would think about. Like, the logistics of the night would be centered around that. Um, and they'd be thinking about, like, where are we, you know, we going to go tonight? What are we going to do? And I'm like, we're here and the beer is here. Why, why are you complicating this, you know? Um, I was like, "What's wrong with What's wrong with you? Why Why are you not obsessing over this sort of thing? Why are you trying to ruin it by mm. taking us further away from the off license?" Um, which wasn't, yeah, wasn't normal. I guess um, wasn't what they were doing anyway. But again, I just thought I was really fun. I thought this was, yeah, just how it was, kind of thing. Mm. Didn't think too much about it really. And then, yeah, weed came along next, um, which uh, I didn't like at first, but powered through until I did like it. Um, <laughs> And then um, that's how you can really tell an addict. I think going mean, out did similar things um, yeah. with weed in particular. Actually, I didn't uh, really like it much to begin with, but I almost felt like I had to train, mm. you know, to really get it until I really got it. Yeah, yeah, and it was horrible. Really, it made me really, really anxious and socially paranoid. Um, 
incredibly stressful whenever I was stoned, but if I was in a safe environment, I loved it. I loved that feeling sort of thing. So that didn't matter. The adverse effects did not matter one bit. I was still, I was going to do it if I physically could kind of thing. And then it was, yeah, a few years later, the, the hardest stuff came in, the party drugs and things. Um, and that was, yeah, that, that was really, really fun. I mean, it was a lot of overdoing it, blacking out, embarrassing myself, vomiting, all of that stuff. That was usually me doing that. So you'd um, be that guy at the party. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, um, you know, kind of notorious for it. Um, if there was MDMA around or whatever, I'd be the one, a gurning mess needing to be carried home or whatever. Um, I mean, in the circles that I was in, I was, you know, I got into playing in bands and stuff and we'd go around gigging and playing festivals and just generally, you know, I lived in, lived in Brighton and, um, yeah, there, there was a big, big party scene that you could just exist in basically, um, so what was socially acceptable was an incredibly high or low bar, whichever way you want to look at it, <laughs> you know, socially acceptable amount of drink and drugs to do was a disgusting amount. Um, and it was okay. And it was very normalized and yeah, a lot of fun was had, you know, I did have a lot of good times. Um, so it was, you were young, fancy free, having a good time, doing a lot of drugs mm. and at some point, which sort of brings us to question three already is at some point, clearly some consequences came. Question three is, what were your worst consequences and finally your rock bottom? I mean, feel free to elaborate a bit more on how the good times then started having some consequences first. Yeah, I mean, the good times, they were always dabbled with really bad times when I, when, you know, I do really bad stuff, I'd become sort of possessed i'd lose control i was aware that i kind of this thing would take me over and I'd, if i remembered or was told what i'd done the next day it was like what that's not me uh, you know you know how how was i doing that as if i wasn't you know conscious kind of thing but there were still fun times happening so that that i just thought i've got a broken off switch okay i'll learn i'll learn to control this at some point presumably i'll calm down and other people would do this stuff occasionally and i'd be like oh well, there you go it's just part of mm. part of it um, but yeah, things did start taking a turn, progressing, I guess, um, when I really noticed it. And I think this was a really, uh, terrifying thing. The thing that just got worse and worse, uh, was the isolation of it. For me, it became a really, really solitary thing. And there was a certain point where, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't enjoy anything socially, um, because my head would just become absolutely fixated on getting as much usually coke as I could and going and using on my own because I didn't want to share it and I didn't want anyone else being around me mm. um and this started happening and I thought this is kind of you know weird but this will stop at some you know I didn't think too much about it mm. when um, did cocaine come into your life I think well I, I'd had it I'd had it um at various points kind of I don't know since I was 18 or something um, but it would usually be there at a party mixed with other stuff. There was one point I lived in Spain when I was about 30 and it became, it was really easy to go and get. There was just a neighborhood you could just go and like pick it up um, just in the street. You know, it was really grimy. Um, and that's the first time I, I really experienced what I'd now call a sort of obsession where I'd just be like at work in the day and that's all I could think about. And my head was just going there and just, just planning how I was going to get it how I was going to do it secretly from my girlfriend who I lived with at the time. Um, 
and it was really powerful it started then i think um yeah all of the all of the uh extreme behavior that came before that i could kind of justify i could kind of think well you know that that's kind of normal ish mm. um but this was a really weird lonely thing to be doing and i felt like i was the only person in the world mm. to be doing it kind and of was cocaine was that in you know how with some drugs we have an quote unquote instant love affair mm. and with others they sort of sneak in a bit more through the back door in my case i had an instant love affair again quote unquote of course mm. with um ecstasy pills mm -hmm. where that really rocked me and i thought this is so amazing whereas cocaine sort of snuck in through the back door and was that the same with you in terms of cocaine i guess there was a bit of sneaking yeah because I had a love affair with whatever I tried. I don't think there was anything I tried that I wasn't like, wow, this is really good and I'm going to do as much of this as I can, you know. Um, but the difference was, I'd, you know, say there was something like ecstasy or um, or speed or uh, ketamine, whatever. If it was there on a night, I would do all of it absolutely ravenously. And then the next day I'd kind of go, oh, God, okay, I'm not going to do that for a while. And I maybe wouldn't. Mm. Um But yeah, with Coke, it snuck in that I'd, I'd try, I'd had it here and there and it was okay, it was fine. It, I saw it as an enhancement to whatever else I was doing. Um, but it was when I was able to just get it whenever I wanted um, and do as much of it as, it would do, do a large amount, do like grams and grams on my own. Mm. And once I'd had that, that became the, I guess, the love affair. Even though I hated it right from the beginning. You know, the, I'd, I'd run out that night and I'm just like doing it in the bathroom or whatever when my girlfriend's asleep. And um, I hated it. So what is this? This is demonic. I don't want to be doing this. I didn't plan to. And and I, I hate how I feel. I'm not going to do this again. And then, of course, I would I would do it again a few days later because that thought thought and then obsession would just come into my mind and, and wouldn't back off. It would just get stronger and stronger. So there was some awareness there. In other words you knew there was a dependency there. You knew that this has had, had gone in a direction that you didn't want it to go. And so there was some awareness there that this is happening. You you don't want it to happen, but it is happening. You hate it and yet you can't stop it. Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't think I saw it as a direction I was going in. I think I was in denial about that. It was just something that I seemed to be doing at that point. And it was because, oh, I'm not happy in this relationship or I'm not happy doing this job or I'm not happy with this place I'm living, whatever it is. Um, rather than oh this is something that's just going to i didn't know then it was going to keep happening and it was keep going to keep getting worse it was going to get i was going to get less and less control of it and when i did it i was going to do more and more extreme amounts and that's what i did um that was really terrifying that isolation became more and more um when i was sober it would creep in as a thought and it would get stronger until you know i might i might fight it off for hours days maybe weeks um But it would make me start. And then once I started, it was this monster, this this craving that was just so powerful. Um, and I hated it so much and I wanted to stop, but it was always around the corner. And I think that's, at some point I did realize that this isn't going away. This keeps happening. Mm. This monster is always just around the corner mm. for some reason. Mm. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I guess I didn't allow myself to think too consciously about where is this going? What's going to happen with this? How, how and why is this going to stop? You know? And your worst consequences slash your rock bottom, what did that look like just before you came into the rooms? 
I didn't have one sort of rock bottom. I didn't have a sort of, oh, I, I woke up in hospital and I'd nearly died or, you know, I mean, I had lots of really, really bad stuff happen, um, but not one that really stands out. Like what? Um, so having, having just gone on, gone for a drink one day and then ended up on a bender for absolutely days on end doing God knows what, some of it I remember, some of it I don't. Um, driving around in states that just I shouldn't know should be driving just mm -hmm. just really awful stuff that yeah um, again I can't believe it was me I can't believe I you know I can only make sense of it by thinking it's this all-powerful monster that took over me that's not to avoid responsibility I absolutely take responsibility for everything I did and the way I do that is by making sure I stay sober because that thing could take me over again but yeah things like that coming you know coming to the end of few days and then and then having to go to work or then having to go and do some family event and just completely embarrassing myself in front of my family um things i'd done to other people that they told me about that was something that scared me or it changed my perspective it's from okay i've got this monster thing and it it comes in and i can't seem to keep it away but i, I can deal with the consequences i'm just going to take it sort of thing that was preferable to actually asking you for help but then when I realized this is really affecting other people and I'm doing stuff that I wouldn't normally do, um, that was a bit like, okay, I'm going to need to do something about it. So there wasn't one particular thing, but it was the gradual increasing isolation and misery and just uh, sort of weirdness of it and, you know, doing that on your own and um, getting into mental states of kind of psychosis and paranoia, you know, where I'm just in my room where I've been for days and I'm, I'm too scared to leave, to leave the room, even if I'm in the house on my own, you know, I can't, can't even do that. And then always feeling like I am, um, becoming really psychotic and having voices and feel like I am different parts of myself. They're really splitting apart and other parts that are not my central self were taking over and were making me carry on. So I'm texting dealers just thinking why I don't want, I know I don't want to be doing this. Mm. I just want to stop, but my, my body and some part of my mind is is taking over and is doing like it. an autopilot. Yeah, a really, really horrible, horrible <laughs> autopilot that wants me to crash into a mountain. Yeah. Um, and it was the gradual increasing horror of that and, and the desperation of it. What were people reflecting back to you? I know this is part of my story as well, that people were saying you were really weird yesterday or that sort of thing. What was that like for you? Towards the end, there wasn't so much of that because it was so isolated for me. I was so fixated on just using Coke on my own um, or ketamine. I tried that for a while. I, I realized once I'd had ketamine, I didn't want Coke. That desire was just gone. I just wanted a hell of a lot more ketamine, but that would just send me into a K-hole eventually. Um, so I spent about six months of my life just doing that. Um, why am I talking about that? What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> the question was, the question was, um, what would people reflect? Oh yeah, well, so it had become such an isolated thing. I was either doing coke on my own or in that cave where I was just dribbling on my own in a room. It wasn't, it wasn't anything people were really yeah. reflecting back. So it, so it was, was invisible to others. Yeah, but they probably knew something was up. I think they didn't know something was was wrong, um, but they didn't know what people would tell me about stuff I'd done in years before though actually so it had been worse than i realized that was really really scary mm. um yeah mm. yeah so that was that was the main the main stuff that was reflecting yeah. back to me question four mm. did you ever 
at your worst, did you ever want to die? Did you consider suicide? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I considered it. Um, I hear it put sometimes that I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to die. And that really, that really is how I felt. I, I, I didn't want to, I, I never got to the place of, of actively trying to take my own life. Um, but I really didn't want to live. I really didn't. That was just an awful prospect, life carrying on the way that it was. Um, so I remember certain times when I really thought I might actually die in the night because I'd taken like double figures, grams of cocaine, and my heart was just doing God awful things, yeah. palpitating. And my my breathing would just stop kind of working, really, unless I really consciously focused on it. I don't know what it is in cocaine that does that, but for me, that it would just become this thing where if I just didn't concentrate on it, I would not, I would not keep breathing, kind of thing. And it's it's just really a horrible place to be. But I remember this, and this was just before I first got a sponsor in the rooms. Um, it was right at the beginning of of the first lockdown of COVID, and my my breathing was doing this thing. And my head was like, ah, oh, this, this must be that virus thing that fucks your lungs up that everyone's talking about. <laughs> um, didn't think, oh no, this is the 10 grams of cocaine you've just taken. Um, you must have got that. Great, you'll die. And it won't be your fault because this is a virus thing. Not an overdose. Not that I'm saying an overdose is someone's fault, but this is what my head was doing at the time. Um, you'll die. And that's firstly, what relief. That was the first kind of actual peace I'd felt in a long time really thinking that was a possibility um that I was not going to wake up um and you know good you'll be gone you'll be out of the world you won't take up a hospital bed in this pandemic that's coming and you'll just you know that that is really where I was just in the place of this world would be better if I wasn't in it and it's going to happen through no choice of my own brilliant that's that's the place it took me to Mm. um so I don't know if that was a a kind of rock bottom because it was a few days after that, that I asked someone to be my sponsor. Mm. Yeah. It's a really sad place mm. um, when you think that being taken by an illness is the easy way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where it takes us to. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine anything. I couldn't imagine any other pathway to being at peace, you know, than that. It was just like that, all the stuff I'd done, all, all of the just, yeah. The, the shameful as I felt you know stuff that I was doing yeah. because I was just bad presumably um yeah mm. that was the only way I could think out of that question five what other methods did you try to get sober before finding the brooms mm. were there any methods did you try by yourself I never tried to get sober sober teetotal ever because that was just so unimaginable yeah. like that was just beyond what I would even consider doing for a moment. I I was, I guess, realistic enough to know that on my own, at least I could not do that. Um, Sober from everything. Yeah, I did try. uh, I thought for a long time that Coke is my problem. If I can stop doing that for long enough, this weird craving thing, this monster that turns up will go away and then I'll be able to drink and I'll be able to smoke weed, probably do a bit of K, maybe do, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so I did, uh, you know, various things to to stay off coke. The ketamine plan, which, uh, you know, just doing huge amounts of ketamine for about six months. Very unproductive time in my life. Um, did keep me off coke, mostly. 
But yeah, that was one plan. But isn't that just like trying to get away from a headache by <laughs> yeah. inflicting massive pain to another yeah. part of your body? Interesting. Your question was, did I try and get saved though? And that's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, that was one. I did uh, what we call sort of geographicals, you know, moving yeah. away. Um, I moved to Brazil for a year in my late 20s. And that's probably not the best place. I didn't, you know, the cocaine wasn't really that much on the scene then, but I just, I just you know, had a lot of really awful... Um, awful times there on, mm. of alcohol and cocaine um i went to uh france this was kind of one of those probably rock bottom things even though it didn't push me um push me to ask for help at the time um i went and just um volunteered with you know um, with sort of refugee support stuff um out of just desperation of just like I, i'm no use to anybody or to my kind of help myself, so I may as well go. And I, I kind of been, <clears throat> I'd been to places like that before, and I knew what they were like, and it's, it's horrible. And I was like, that's where I deserve to be, but I may as well be doing something that's useful to somebody else. Um, and I can't get coke there, so I thought that'll be like my detox, all right. So I went and obviously just drank horrible amounts and smoked horrible amounts of weed, uh, yeah, and then came back, and within twenty four hours, I'm back on the coke anyway. So mm. yeah, these were the kind of, as I see it now, pretty pretty hopeless delusional ways to to get off me yeah. hoke yeah um but yeah I, I never tried to stop everything because that was just beyond imagination yeah. Yeah, yeah for me unthinkable unthinkable and when people would would talk about being teetotal i'd be like well you're a different species to me we're just not the same like i cannot i could not do that mm. you know i think that mindset when you look at other people who are able to drink socially, so have a glass or two and then walk away. Yeah. And looking at them and seeing them as a different species, that's one of them, mm. I'd say, a key indicator mm -hmm. that there's mm -hmm. something really wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. When I see people do that, when I see people have a glass of wine, one glass of wine with their meal, <laughs> and they're not fixated on that and they're having conversations and that's not completely constricting their attention, I'm like, how do you do? it's like watching someone drink a glass of arsenic or is arsenic a liquid i don't know but it'd be like i can't i physically cannot do that you know this is how i thought before and that was the case because i never had you know um it, would, it was always the the thing that would just um take over it would be in charge somehow or other if it was there so after that episode that we just mentioned earlier you 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 did say that you went and you looked for a sponsor, found a sponsor. Mm, so yeah. you had already been to the rooms a few times. That's right. What had you been in and out? Or yeah, I'd been. Um, I've been to a few meetings. I think I, you know I lived with my parents for a bit, um, and I think the first few I did was kind of to get them off my back or, or get myself off my back. Really, feel like I was doing something. Um, then I could say, look, I, I tried that. So now leave me alone. I'll just carry on. Even though I don't want to be doing that. I don't know what I was really thinking. But I had been to some. Um, but I'd not been ready in any way to sort of actually do what people there were saying I needed to do. But, for, you know, from the moment I walked in, I realised I actually wasn't alone. I heard people straight away explaining the kind of thinking and the kind of using that I used to do. Um, really similar stuff, really parallel stuff. And I was like, oh okay it's not just me doing this i then carried on i think there was like a year and a half between that first meeting and, and that time when i first got the sponsor it had to get 
worse for me. It had to get significantly worse. I had to get even more desperate to be at that point of really going, okay, I'm really going to have to ask for someone's help mm-hmm. and try something different. We hear this often, don't we, that unless you're completely ready and really on your mm-hmm. knees, you're not going to be able to to hear the message, as they say. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I heard enough. I did hear enough. Mm-hmm. I, I felt less alone right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I must have heard the message mm. that it worked. I could see it straight away. I really could, mm. but I was still part of me that was going. Now I'm, I'm different. I'm, I've got this. I can, I can do this on my own. I'm going to need a little bit of help from you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it on my own. Really, mm. uh, I was, I was quite like um, belligerent about that. Quite prideful that it was going to be me that was going to pull myself out of this, and you know, like a phoenix from the ashes. How you know, the worse it got, it was almost romanticizing how, how like. I don't know what, oh, I suppose you cringe, but like how heroic it would be when I, you know, do pull myself out of it and I can tell everyone how bad it was. All of it. Self-reliance. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like really, really extreme. Really. Yeah. It was like a part of me that was using that to 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 make sense of everything. I don't yeah. know. Just like, yeah. can't just be that I've just fucked my life up this much. And, you know, I the last thing I wanted to be, you know, fucking addict, yeah. an alcoholic. I ne- never thought in a million years that was going to be me. Question six. Did you struggle with the word God when you came into the rooms? If you're enjoying this podcast and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. No. No, I wouldn't say I struggled with it. I didn't much care for it. Um, And there were kind of phrases and, and language and terminology that I did struggle a bit with, that I did associate with certain religions and certain sort of uh, what I felt were quite masochistic philosophies. Um, hmm. Care to give an example? Well, yeah, yeah, I remember hearing somebody who, looking back, probably had really good recovery and was just saying, you know, was sharing what their life was like, that they were free from this stuff. They used to be like me and now they were they were free and their life was, you know, they had all this stuff going on. Um, and they were like, but it's not me that's done in any of this. It was God. And I just like rolled my eyes so much and just thought, why, you know, why can't you just take some credit? <laughs> anyway. um, but I didn't understand. So I didn't have my own experience, basically. I can frame, that, that, was, that was his stuff. That was, you know, nothing to do with me. Um, but I can frame that now within my own experience. Um, so little things like that. I, I was looking at that point for things to be pissed off at, things to feel superior to. But the word God itself, no, I, it was really clear from what people said that that really could be anything. You could use any word that you wanted. It could be any concept. People would, sh- you know, share the thing. Oh, for me, it's nature or I just call it good. I had an extra O and it's good. That really worked for me. I also knew there were people that, you know, said they were atheists, whatever that means, um, that were doing this stuff and it was working for them. So I could see that this thing, whatever it was, was working and did not rely on belie- believing in God, whatever that means. Um, so yeah, it didn't, it didn't block me off. I don't think that word, I, I was determined not to use it. I didn't use the word God and I wouldn't use the word pray. I'd, I'd say set intentions instead of pray. Uh, and I'd say pretty much anything other than God. Um, but I was like, that's cool. Cause it doesn't matter to me what other people call it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, question seven is, how do you experience your higher power? Now, you've been in the rooms for a while. You're sober how long? Uh, a bit over two years. A bit over two years. Well mm-hmm. done. Thank you. Today, where things are 
clearly different. How do you experience your higher power? Um, as a yeah, as a as a feeling. Firstly, when I when I think about it, when I connect to it, when I do the things that I do to connect to it, which are things like meditating, helping others, just connecting to others. Um, it's a feeling that I can't really put a word to, a feeling, I suppose, of peace, of sort of wholeness, um, happiness, to be honest. I think that's largely for me what is a sign that I'm connected if it's in, if it's for the right reasons. Um, and in in changes in myself and in the, in the ways the way that I respond differently to things than I would have done in the past, ways that surprise myself sometimes. Um, yeah, it's that it's that feeling of kind of um, it's an openness. It's just an open kind of peaceful feeling. That's that's my main that's my main um, answer to that. How how I actually experience it in a way that I can describe, and it's a feeling that I am I am completely the other end of the spectrum of when I am like angry or acting out in some way or you know in some kind of feeling or behavior that I don't like and I don't want to um I don't want to grow then I I can't be in that feeling of connected to my higher power um it's like being you know it's like imagining you're hungry when you're full up but you just can't they're two things that can't coexist for me so I kind of I identify it when I'm in the opposite <laughs> feeling as well beautiful Question eight, which part of the steps was the most difficult for you? I think step three um, was the one that I didn't know, but I didn't really do fully. Um, so turning your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand it. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, step one, the powerlessness thing, I, I, I got that. Um I couldn't really deny it. Um, there was so much experience. There was so much evidence. Just for those for mm. those listeners who, who are not as familiar with the steps as we are, step one being that we admitted we are powerless over cocaine or other mind-altering mm. substances and that our lives had become unmanageable. So yeah. that was something that was clear and obvious to you. Well, not, not right at the beginning. I, I wouldn't have had a good sort of deep understanding of powerlessness i had to really look at that with a sponsor with the book which gives you know a lot of examples a lot of description of what that really means and what i love about the steps is no one's ever gone this is you this is what you have to think this is what you have to believe they've just gone this is what we think what do you think is this does this apply to you do you want this do you want to you know do you want to have this as a conceptualization and and looking at you know powerlessness um, powerlessness I could absolutely go, yeah, I, I don't want to accept this. I really, really, at, at the beginning, I was like, I really, really don't want to be powerless over everything, mind-altering, but I clearly am. Um, so it wasn't easy, actually. I, I, I clung on to, to marijuana. I wanted to, I thought I had power over that, and I had to learn that the hard way. My sponsor was like, okay, you're going to keep doing that, are you? Let's see how that goes. And he actually just let me do it. And yeah, it went horribly wrong. That, that progressed um, to a point where I was just chucking loads of loads of hash in my coffee in the morning and getting myself into just like bizarre states by by midday it's just like what's going on here and then that led me back to coke anyway which it had never done before so i came back you know sort of crawling back like okay yeah turns out 
you were you know you were right about that so it wasn't um yeah it wasn't a smooth ride accepting that i was powerless um but i got there and then as for step two coming to believe that there was a power that could restore me to sanity i mean i could yeah i could definitely see it in the rooms there was no way i felt i could deny it you know unless i thought everyone was lying or i was somehow different um which meant both things i i tried to believe i think i really did um but now after a while after being to enough meetings and you know talking to people and really hearing um hearing the sobriety that they had and where they'd been before um yeah that wasn't a struggle but i struggled with step three because what you have to do is completely turn yourself over to it now that i, I, I can't remember if that's the words but um yeah, completely turn yeah. your will and your life over to the care of God. Yeah. Did you understand? Yeah, yeah. That's embarrassing. I can remember that. Um, yeah, the completely part. Mm. So I didn't, and I didn't, and this is the sneaky thing about the self. Like I didn't really know it was there. I was kind of holding, holding little bits back. It doesn't actually use the word completely in, 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 in the actual steps. So it? it's something that I think we discover in time that mm. actually it's everything, every part of you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my experience. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And it's making that decision to do that. And I thought I had, I'd said all the words and I definitely made a decision to go some of the way, you know, um, but there were things that I held on to. Um, we go, with that, we go into the rest of the steps, right? And we trust that they're going to work um, if we do the best that we can. And without doing that it didn't work for me it worked for you know it worked i got some sobriety for a while um but i'd held some stuff back from my sponsor um and i wasn't quite doing everything he was suggesting and i was sort of convincing myself that i was um and then after you know a relapse after six months or something i had quite a few relapses over like a year and a half um but yeah, after this particular one i was like oh hang on i'm holding i've been holding this thing back all the time i've not actually done it because it you know i've been told i need to do it thoroughly i need to completely do it um so that's when that clicked and it was like a, that's i'd say that's when the work started but the struggle stopped because it was just like okay i'm going to do whatever i'm just going to trust that something else that's, that's actually got nothing to do with me myself my conscious mind i've got no idea what it's going to look like i've just got to go through these steps completely and see see what happens basically Question nine, which character defects give you most trouble? Mm, I think um, I think fear is probably the most like pervasive one, the one that's there all the time as well. Uh, there's a baseline of fear. Like, maybe we always ha all always have, I don't know. But um, yeah, seeing the more, I, the more I look at stuff and I break it down, seeing that that is what is underneath things. And it used to look very different. You know, I uh, came in the rooms, um, started working the steps, started looking at my life, started honestly sharing what was, what had been going on. And then looking back at my life, I could see how absolutely dominated by fear I had been and how many things I was prevented from doing through fear. Um, and they were big, obvious things. Uh, the longer I go in sobriety, the more subtle those things are. You know, um, fear is there in a more subtle way, but it definitely is there. Um, and I, re I realized afterwards, oh, I didn't actually do that or I didn't say that or, I, um, yeah, I hid from that or I avoided that because there was a bit of fear there. Um, yeah. And, um, 
it's a hard thing to be honest about. A lot of my my persona was being really, really confident and outgoing and, and people are so surprised, people that, you know, knew me back in the day, that actually fear has always been a massive part of it. I was just hiding it. So yeah, being yeah, it's just such a release and a relief to be able to um share it. And every, everyone I've ever spoken to in 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 twelve steps has been like, Yep, <laughs> get that, completely relate. You know, we will have it. Big part of recovery is is shedding that veneer mm-hmm. that we have mm-hmm. and getting honest about yeah. what's going on underneath. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can very much relate to that. Mm-hmm. And funny, we have to be so desperate. Well, I had to be so desperate to actually be fully honest. I had to be really, really desperate <laughs> to actually go. Okay, I'm gonna. You know, not being honest with you is actually more scary now than being honest because look at where it's getting me. It's not working. Yeah. Question 10. What's the best thing that recovery has given you? Mm. Uh, every, everything <laughs> that I've got, really, because I do see it that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have anything that I do have now. I, I do think I'd be dead now, or worse, I'd be still alive, existing in that state that I was in. Um, so I guess, to put it into a word, it's freedom, but it's a freedom that I didn't know I didn't have before because I never experienced it. Yeah. Um, freedom from fear for one thing. Um, first and foremost, it was freedom from that obsession, you know, that monster that was around the corner, um, moment to moment, day to day. It it gives me freedom from that protection from that. Um, that was amazing. That's all I wanted when I came in. I was like, I just want to get on with my life. I want that monster to go and to get on with it. Um, which has happened. Um, but realizing the freedom that I have from needing to change how I feel, I didn't know how much that was, how I was going through the world. It was always the obsession of mine was how am I going to enhance this good thing by getting high or how am I going to deal with this bad thing by getting high or how am I going to deal with this boredom by (laughs) getting high? It was just always the obsession and I wasn't free. Um, you know, I, when I sit down and just have dinner with a friend now and I'm actually really talking to them and really interested and really connected and not trying to just think, how am I going to feed my ego by being as entertaining as I can and getting as getting us as drunk as we can so that we have a really good time, you know. I, I was constrained by that and I didn't didn't really know it mm-hmm. at the time. And it's, it's yeah, it's like having having freedom from things that I didn't know were there has made me realise that they were there all along. And then from that freedom comes everything else in my life that I'm able to do. I am able to get on with it, but in a way that's completely, um, yeah, enhanced. Everything is just enhanced from how it was before. Mm. Quite a contrast mm. to what it was like then. Yeah, it's pretty unrecognisable. And I really do, it sounds a bit corny maybe, but just in those little moments, just going for a walk, just walking to the shop, you know, <laughs> just to buy some milk. And I'm like, I'm fr- I'm free, like I'm not. Yeah, I wasn't conscious of it all the time before, but I really am free just to be present in this and enjoy this. I think, as the book says, being able to go wherever we like as free men mm-hmm. without causing carnage, I'm paraphrasing, of course, mm-hmm. is something that I hold so dear to my heart in terms of recovery and what it has given me. Mm-hmm. So I can really relate to what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were speaking earlier about what people were feeding back to you when you were in the madness, as we said, when you were in active addiction and you were 
I'm quoting you, embarrassing yourself and going into blackouts and so on, you know. What do people feed back to you today? Yeah, they see a real difference. Just, I think, in how I seem. I think I just seem more present and more happy. That's what they seem to say, and more relaxed. Which is funny, because I would have thought I seemed pretty relaxed. I did spend a lot of energy trying to seem like I was relaxed before. But now I genuinely am. (laughs) Contradiction, if ever there was one, spending a lot of energy on being relaxed. Seriously, yeah. Stressful, seeming relaxed. (laughs) Um. So yeah, they they say things like that. They, um, yeah, the light the lights coming on behind the eyes. That's something that I've I've heard quite a lot, and I've seen it in others. And it's like wow, it, it's a it's slightly double edged thing sometimes because I'm like, what the what was I like before? You know, I have like bumped into friends who've not seen me in a couple of years, and they've been like, whoa, what has happened to you? Honestly, like you, and I was like, what what was I like before? They're like, your skin was all grey, and you're like dead behind the eyes. I'm like, fucking hell, great. <laughs> It is great, but, you know, how unaware I was, really. Um, but they, they see that difference, that stark, that stark contrast. Question 11. Mm. What would you say to a newcomer or someone wondering if they're an addict? Mm. Um, I think I'd say you're welcome. Whatever's going on, whatever you're thinking, whatever you might make of all this stuff, like, you're welcome and you're loved, come along, come along and listen. There's no pressure to do anything. Um, I've, yeah, I felt so, so alone. I really thought I was the only person doing the kind of stuff that I was doing. Uh, And I really can't describe the power of when I started hearing people just honestly saying, I used to do that. Well, this is the kind of thing I was up to. And just just the power of, of knowing I was not the only person in the world doing it um, and that there was hope. Um, you know, people don't need, didn't even need to be specific to me. I remember one guy in a, in a share just saying, like, you know, well, I'm not going to go into details, but, you know, things got really weird for me. And it's like, you've all got your own versions, but things get weird, don't they? And everyone's just nodding. I'm like, okay, it doesn't even matter what, you know, what the specifics are. Like, I'm, I'm not alone here. Um, so yeah, you're welcome. Come along and listen. Um, and even if you, you, everyone annoys you and you don't want to have anything to do with us, just keep listening. Know that know that it's there. We're there. If you do want it, you've got to really want it, and you've got to really do it. Has been my experience um, when I've when I've been floundering around it a bit, and um, my sponsor said to me after I've relapsed or something, it's been like, "Do you really want it?" I've been like, how dare you? How dare you? Do you not know how much misery I'm in? And I've been working pretty hard. And I had, you know, but just not fully. Um, this is like, yeah, that's all he could do was ask, do I really want it? Because it was up to me if I wanted to do it. But but all of the time I came into meetings and, and stuff before I got down to the steps, before I seriously got down to the steps, I needed that. You know, that, it was there for me and it got me to that point. So whatever's going on with you, if you're thinking, oh, I'd, oh yeah, I've got a resistance to that. I don't think that's for me or they're not going to, you know, I'm not like that. I'm not, just come along. What have you got to lose kind of thing? I like it when people say we can refund your misery. I like that because it's true. It's just like, well, how are things now? Do you want to try something else? Go back to it, you know, <laughs> give it a go. Even just for a day, like try it fully, see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then you can go back mm-hmm. to whatever you were doing which obviously wasn't great if you're thinking about going, going to a 12-step meeting. Yeah, I think we hear it quite often in the rooms, don't we, that if you somehow ended up in this meeting, then there's probably a good reason for it. doesn't necessarily mean you're an addict, absolutely not. 
But something is going on, otherwise you wouldn't be in a meeting looking for help. So I can only reiterate what you say. Mm -hmm. Everybody's welcome at all times, and it's such a brilliant place to be. I have so many preconceived ideas and fears really about this that'd be really weird and I'd be super uncomfortable. And the exact opposite was true. Everybody was just brilliant with me and was immediate friendships and fellowship. Um, and it's a hugely welcoming place. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Last question. Question 12. What do you want your higher power to say to you, quote unquote, at the pearly gates? Uh, come in, I would hope. <laughs> yeah, I think imagery like that, um, I do... Um, I do like to think of it as sort of, you know, metaphorical, which I could think, I think it can only be. And, you know, um, I like to think of religious stuff, a lot of spiritual stuff as being, you know, metaphorical for something, just a way of conceptualizing whatever it is. So I think of heaven as, and I'm not alone in this, and, you know, a state of consciousness, the best state of consciousness you can, you can be in. So I kind of think... I'm, I'm there now. There's, there's the pearly gates. There's my ability to be to be in that place, um, if if I choose to have it, sort of thing. But the thing is, I had no idea how to do that before. I was I was in hell. I was in absolute hell before. Um, all my all my ideas, all of my plans, all of all of the all of the um, yeah paths I would follow would always just lead me back to the gates of hell. So. Now I'm I'm not always in heaven, but I'm, the gates are always there, kind of thing. Because I got the steps, because I got people around me to go. This is how this is how you can actually do it when your when your head goes mad, which it regularly does. Um, this is how you get back to that place. Great, thank you so much for your courage and for your honesty for coming around for this episode of Twelve Steps and Twelve Questions. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. While this pod is based on the 12th step recovery program, it's not officially affiliated with any 12th step fellowship. 12 steps and 12 questions is not substance or behavior specific. It's fully self-supporting and not for profit. And you know this next bit. It's not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy and it neither endorses nor opposes any causes.